Bibles and go to Mark chapter 3, and children, you are dismissed to junior church. <clears throat> Mark chapter 3 is where we're at this morning, and uh, it has been <clears throat> really wonderful as we are just going through the, the gospel of Mark, just to see the life of Jesus, and uh, to see his miracles, to see his heartbeat and his ministry, and I think it's great. Uh, I'm, I, I, I've enjoyed going through this, and hopefully you have as well, and if you remember last week, we saw that Jesus was once again confronted by uh, the Pharisees and uh, he was grieved by the hardness of their heart and he was also angry at the hardness of their heart because he knew exactly where it would lead them. He knew that it would lead them to separation from God. And this morning, as we examine the next six verses, we're going to see an example of three different groups that were surrounding Jesus, and uh, these three groups are very similar to what you'd find in most churches this morning. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, look at verse 7, we'll start there. The Bible says, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea. And from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us. I thank you that we can go through the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus and uh, just to, to see his heartbeat and his ministry. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us this morning. Uh, that you'll help us to have a desire to know you more. I pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here this morning that does not know you, that today will be the day that they get to know you as their personal Savior. I thank you so much for everything that you've done, for those that are able to be with us this morning. I pray that you'll be with the many that are traveling and sick. I pray that you'll just uh, give them uh, your grace and and give them your healing touch. And uh, I just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and for giving us your word and and for the opportunity that we have to assemble together and worship your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. If I was to go around this room this morning and ask every single person in here what the most important thing in life is, I want you to consider what your answer would be. What is the most important thing in life? life. If we were all honest this morning, probably uh, some would say to be wealthy, to have money, to have financial stability. Or maybe some people would say that the most important thing is to have a good family, to, to have a good relationship with your children or your grandchildren. Or maybe we would say to have good health, to, to be able to live a, a good long life and to be able to enjoy our life. Or maybe for some, we would say to have a lot of friends, to be accepted in in, uh, a lot of social circles, and to have a a very large social circle. Maybe some would say 
to have a, a good job, a stable job that where you can climb the corporate ladder and uh, uh, to be well off. But this morning, I submit to each one of you here that the very most important thing in everybody's life is knowing God. Knowing God. And these three groups that we're going to look at this morning include the very few disciples of Jesus Christ, and it includes a very large and desirous crowd, and then also the demons of the satanic world. And as you look at these three groups, I must ask you, which group do you fit in with when it comes to knowing God? Do you know God like the disciples knew Him? Do you know Him like the desirous crowd knew Him? And do you only know of Him like the demons knew of Him? Are you a genuine follower of Christ or do you only come to church to to seek what God can give you? Do you only know the truth of God or do you personally know Jesus Christ as your Savior? So we're going to go ahead and jump in by uh, meeting the first group and that is the disciples. Look again at Matthew or Mark chapter 3. Look at verse 7, the first part of verse 7. Look what it says. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. Now, next week, we're going to see the disciples call. Uh, But right now, we see that Jesus has these disciples, these people that were close to him. And as plots against Jesus' life were being hatched, Jesus decided to withdraw from the crowd like he often did. Remember, we've seen that before, haven't we? Where he just isolates himself. He just goes away from the crowd. And uh, this withdrawing that this verse speaks of, it's actually likened to a man that withdraws his hand from a fire out of self-preservation. So the the uses here, just imagine uh, if you're making a fire, and all of a sudden this, this flame just bursts up and you take your hand away from the fire so that you don't get burned. Well, this is what Jesus was doing. He was, uh, as he often did, he was withdrawing himself from the fire of the crowds for his own preservation. Because while he was God, he was still flesh and blood. He was still man. And as he withdrew himself, he did so to the open sea. He did so where where there was a lot of space so that he would not uh, be too crowded. And he does so with those that were closest to him. And that was his disciples. Now the word disciples in our text, it comes from a Greek word that means a learner, a pupil. It means one that follows one's teaching. So these men were men that took the things of Christ very seriously. They desire to know Christ, and obviously with the exclusion of, of Judas, uh, they desire to know his ways, to learn from him, to follow and obey what Jesus said. I want you to know this morning that a true disciple is set apart from the crowds. A true disciple is in a, a different league than the average person. Uh, a true disciple is easily distinguished from those that are not true disciples. A true disciple of Christ is easy to pick out because a true disciple of Christ is one that is truly and actively following Him and they live totally different than those that are not true disciples of Christ. 
Now you may ask, okay, well, what, is, what does an active and genuine disciple of Christ do? Well, we know just from the definition of a disciple. Hey, listen to this closely. A true disciple is a learner of Christ. That is what a true disciple is. They desire to learn from and to learn of Christ. A great example of this is found in Luke 11. Let's go there. Luke chapter 11. We see this as uh, Jesus gives us the example of how to pray, the model prayer. And we see uh, a great example of how a disciple is a learner of Christ. They are a pupil. They, they look to learn from him. Look at Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say unto, the, unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Now, what do we see here? In the first part of that chapter, we see a disciple observing Jesus praying. They saw Christ praying. And then this genuine follower of Christ, whoever it was, uh, they go to God, they go to Jesus, and they ask him to teach them how to pray. This disciple came to Jesus to listen, and he came to Jesus to learn, and he said, Lord, teach us. And church, this is what an active follower of Christ does. They're eager to learn. They desire to know the things of God. And this is so helpful for us today, okay? Because, listen, do you understand that we could never learn too much of Christ? You understand we could never learn too much from Christ? You can never learn too much about the God of heaven? You're never going to get to a point where you're just like, you know what, I just have too much knowledge of God. i got to stop, man. This is, I just, I know everything. I, I've just exhausted the depths of God. No, that's never going to happen. And you know, every week at this church, we have many opportunities to learn about our great Savior. I mean, we've got Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We've got Bible studies. And you know what? It's still not enough. True disciples, they long to know God. True disciples, they don't have to be begged to go to church. They don't have to be begged to read their Bibles, they want to, and they desire to. 
Just like a poor man that hasn't eaten for a long time and they're starving for food, they're longing to eat. So is a disciple of Christ. They long for more knowledge of God. And we could never exhaust the depths of our Savior. And a true disciple of Christ, they will long for every opportunity to learn of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An active disciple, they long to know Him more. They yearn to learn more of His character, His actions, His attributes, His work. They look to know God more every single day in their personal Bible reading and in their prayer time. They don't just read the Bible to get their spiritual discipline checked off for the day. They don't just pray to say, I prayed. They do these things to know God because they are a disciple of His. They will often go to God and say, Lord, teach me. Just like Paul, you remember when he said that he longs to know God and the power of His resurrection. So church, listen, if you're here and you're saved today, I want to to ask you this question. Does that describe you? Are you actively looking to know God more? Are you a true disciple? Do you long to know Him more? You know that knowing God more is life's greatest pursuits. It is. Jonathan Edwards said, Of all the knowledge we could ever obtain, knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are the most important. Why does he say that? Well, listen, when you understand how wicked you are, and how wicked I am, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that about myself too, when you understand how evil we are, and how desperately in need of God we are, we're going to understand, I need God. I need to know Him more. God is my greatest need, and knowing God is life's greatest pursuits. Now maybe there's somebody here this morning, and you're not a disciple of Christ at all. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've never trusted Christ. Maybe, maybe you're, you're here and you're just kind of like this crowd that we're going to see. You're just kind of following at a distance. You're not saved. You're not a disciple of Christ. Maybe you look the part. Maybe like many people, you like the idea of Jesus. And you know there's a lot of people, they like the idea of Jesus, don't they? Maybe you like what he can do. Maybe you find his teaching interesting. Maybe it intrigues you. Maybe you like the the comfort that he offers. But your devotion to Christ does not go beyond what he can do for you. Maybe like this crowd in in Mark chapter 3, you don't really know Jesus like the disciples knew him. Maybe you're only searching and just desirous of what he can do. And that leads us to the second group. Let's go back to Mark chapter 3. We see the desirous crowd. Mark chapter 3, look at verse 7 again. Look at verse 7. It says, But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And look what it says. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. So, as Jesus withdraws from the crowd with his disciples, we're told that a great multitude of people followed him. And this great multitude of people speaks to an an exceptionally large crowd. And in the verses that we just read, we learn where these crowds came from. 
They came from all over the place. They came from Jerusalem, which, by the way, from where these guys were at was five days' journey from the south. That's a long walk. Five days' journey. And they also came from uh, Idumea, which is even further south. And Jesus, he was very popular among these ordinary people as he drew them from all over the place. But here's a question. Why did they come to him? Why did they come so far to see Jesus Christ? Was it because he was God? Was it because they wanted forgiveness from sin and salvation? The answer is clearly in our text, and the answer is no. So why did they come to him? Look again at verse 8. Look at the, the latter part of verse 8. It says, Of a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. The crowds, they came to Jesus because they heard about the, all the great things that he had done. They heard about the healing, the casting out of demons. They heard about the miracles. And in this, we see that the crowds, they came to the right person, but they came for the wrong reason. Listen, church, Jesus' primary purpose for coming to earth was not to draw crowds and do miracles. The miracles were only meant to validate the message of the gospel. It was only meant to prove that he was God. He did not come to bring physical healing, but spiritual healing. Let's go to Luke chapter 5, a place that we've been in recently, but proves this point of why Jesus came. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we see here, we know why Jesus came. He came to heal people's sin-sick souls. And we know that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. But this great multitude of people... In Mark chapter 3, that came to Jesus. Listen to me closely, church. They came to him for a temporary fix. They came to him for temporary healing. They did not come to him for spiritual healing. And this great multitude of people, they only came for the miracles of Jesus. And look, while people being attracted to Jesus is great, while it is awesome, if people are only focused on what Jesus can do for them, Instead of who Jesus is, they will not follow for long. They won't follow for long. And we know this is true because the same crowd that eagerly followed him would later on take part in crucifying him. One thing that I learned in several years of youth ministry is that. That if, if you just uh, focus on uh, what you can give people instead of who Jesus Christ is, they won't be around for very long. If the focus, again, I learned, if the focus is always on pizza and games, once the teenager turns 18 and they get out of the house, see you later, you won't see them back in church again. Why? Because they didn't want God. They just wanted the pizza and games every week. And by the way, the adult version of pizza and games today is the feel-good music and the entertainment every week. Listen, we don't need that. We need God. We need His Word. But for many in this crowd in Mark chapter 3, 
Jesus was simply a tool for them to get their physical and temporary needs met. Their devotion to him did not go beyond what he, uh, he could do for them. They only wanted a miracle worker. I know how familiar this sounds in this day. In churches everywhere, Jesus is viewed as a genie in a bottle. I mentioned it last week about the prosperity preachers. They say, you name it and claim it, it'll come to you. Just believe by faith that God will give you a, a million dollars and, and you'll get a million dollars or a brand new car, a Lombardi, whatever, whatever it is, a Lamborghini, you'll get it if you just ask God and you claim his name, it'll happen. Many people in the church have this mindset. If I'm, in, if I'm in need of money, and even the Baptist churches, by the way, if I'm in need of money, then I'll go to church and I'll ask God for it and I'll ask him for help. If I lose my job, when I'm in distress, I'll cry out to God when I've had nothing to do with him for years. If my marriage is going down the tubes, I'll go to the church and then I'll seek guidance from God. So many people only see Christ as a miracle worker that can fix their temporary issues of life instead of a savior that can fix their sin-sick soul. And there are so many people that are like this crowd in Mark chapter 3. They don't want God. They don't want salvation. They don't want to be a disciple. They only want to get something out of Jesus. Now, you may be here this morning, somebody here, you might be here this morning for one of those reasons. Maybe your marriage is in trouble and you need guidance. Maybe you're going through some really rough waters and you're searching for peace. Maybe there's a situation in your life that has you between a rock and a hard place and you're looking for what to do. Or maybe you're here because you're searching for help from God. And listen, I want you to know that if that's the case, I am so glad that you are here. I'm thankful, regardless of the reason uh, that you are in church today. But listen to me carefully. We all need to understand that what we need most today is not better marriages. What we need most today is not a better job or more money or an easier life or guidance in a tough situation or physical prosperity. More than anything else in the world, you need forgiveness from sin. More than anything else in the world, you need Jesus Christ. More than a temporary fix to your problems, you need eternal salvation from sin. More than anything in the world, you need to know God. That's what you need. And that's what this crowd in Mark chapter 3 needed. And that is what every person needs. So if you've not done this today, won't you confess Christ as your Savior? Won't you trust Him as your Lord and Savior? Each one of us here, before salvation, we stand condemned before a holy God. We're, we're wicked sinners in opposition to Him. And our sin has put us at odds with God. And therefore we need to trust in Jesus Christ because he brings us redemption and forgives us from sins. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The gospel is very clearly presented in this chapter. And every person, as we read Ephesians chapter 2, you can either joyfully proclaim that this is a reality for you. Or you have to admit that it is not the case in your life. So as you read it, I want you to think, which is it for me? Can I say with uh, the writer of Ephesians, can I say uh, that this is true for me or is it not so? Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. 
Wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What is he saying here? He said, this is what you used to do. This is how you used to live before you met Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh, and uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Let's stop right there. Hey, he's saying, if you were before you got saved, you were a child of wrath. You were facing the wrath of God. Hey, this morning, you ought to be thankful for your saved that you do not face the wrath of God anymore. And thank God for that. Look at verse 4. Love this verse. But God, who is rich in mercy... For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop there for a moment. Look, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, you are seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. What a, what a great thing that is. Look at verse 7. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Hey, listen, which one is it for you this morning? Are you a child of God or a child of wrath? Have you stopped being a child of wrath and at odds with God? And have you become a child of God? Have you experienced this wonderful mercy of God? Are you no longer dead in sins and made alive in Christ? Do you have a heavenly home awaiting for you? Have you trusted in the gift of God? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ only for salvation? Hey, listen, do you know God? Have you seen Jesus for who he is and what he does for us spiritually and not just what he can do for us physically? You know, there are no doubt, church, many great blessings with being a Christian here on earth as we are children of God. But the most important thing has nothing to do with the physical and everything to do with the spiritual and the eternal. Jesus brings us peace with God. And if you know him, you have peace with God. So do you know God. Now we're going to examine the last group in our text, but as we do so, I'd like to add to that question about knowing God. I do not ask if you know of Him, but do you personally know Him? Have you truly decided to follow Jesus? Well, understand, the crowds in Mark chapter 3, this crowd... They knew what Jesus could do for them physically, but they did not care about who he was. They did not care that he was God. They didn't follow him because he was God. And in contrast, the demons in our text, like in many other places in the Bible, they knew exactly who Christ was. They knew the truth of God. They knew that he was the Messiah. But they had no intention of following him or submitting to him. Let's go back to Mark chapter 3 and look at verse 9. Mark chapter 3, verse 9. Mark chapter 3, 
verse 9, the Bible, spe- the Bible says in verse 9, And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. So look, this great multitude of people, even though he withdrew himself, he goes to the open sea. They were getting larger and larger. This crowd, as they were surrounding him, and Christ tells his disciples, Go get me a boat ready uh, just as a safety measure. And this would be just like a small little rowboat that would be attached to their fishing boat. And Jesus, he wanted this to happen in case he had to jump in, uh, in case the crowd were to throng him, as our text tells us. And this throng, that word throng, it means to press hard upon or to crush. It's the same word that's used when speaking of pressing grapes to extract the juice. So this crowd was so large that Jesus could have easily gotten crushed by them. And again, the, the scripture tells that the reason for such a great crowd, was because they wanted to be healed. It's like the, the people from all over the place, they brought their loved ones, maybe they brought their friends, maybe they themselves needed healing, and they begged Jesus to do this. And there were many that desired to be healed themselves as they just flocked to him, and it says that they pressed upon him. And so this situation, it was rapidly escalating, and this pressing upon, it means to fall upon. So there were so many people, church, that, that were looking to get healed and they were surrounding him, that they were falling on him and they were knocking into him, hence the need for that little boat in the water. Just picture maybe a, a concert or a venue or even, remember Black Friday years ago, maybe you've seen the videos, where there are so many people in one, one area and they're pushing uh, against each other, trying to get through that door to get that item. Well, this is what was happening with Jesus Christ. He was surrounded by a crowd that was just pushing against each other just so that they could touch him and get healed. And then Mark focuses our attention on the demonic powers as he speaks of an unclean spirit. And when you read that, that, those two words, unclean spirit, it's talking about demons. Demonic forces that occupied the bodies of human beings. Look at verse 11 again. It says, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. This says, when they saw him. This means, church, every time a demon saw Jesus, this is what they did. Every time. They fell down before him and they screamed out, Thou art the Son of God. Whenever these demons saw Jesus, they would look on him and they would contemplate the truth of his character and his identity and they would acknowledge who he was. Many of you maybe have heard of Martin Luther. While I don't agree with everything that he taught, he was a great theologian and he was most famous for nailing that sheet of paper with his 95 thesis on the University of Wittenberg's chapel door. Well, he was, when he was nearing death, he wrote in his last will and testament, and it began with these words. He said, I am well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. And it's a very true statement as a result of his bold stance for Christ all through his life and his stance for the word of God. And likewise, church, this statement was very true for Jesus. 
He was well known in heaven as he was and is the king of kings. He was becoming very well known on earth as he did all of these miracles. And he most certainly was well known in hell as even the demons acknowledged his deity and the fact that he was God. You remember Mark chapter 1, I believe it was verse 40. We saw how one of the demons proclaimed Christ to be, what did he say? The Holy One of Israel, which was an Old Testament term used for God. In Acts chapter 19, a demon proclaimed uh, to an exorcist, he said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And demons often did this. They, they acknowledged who Jesus was. Let's look at a couple of examples. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 28. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 says, And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gavesines, there met him two possessed with devils, coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear, so that no man might pass by that way. So here we see people are afraid, they're scared, because he's... People are possessed with devils, but look what it says in verse 29. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So here we see people are scared to go near this tomb because these demon-possessed people might come out, but here we see that the demons are scared of Jesus. <laughs> they knew who he was. He was the Son of God. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And this is the same instance here. Mark chapter 5 verse 1. Or yeah, Mark chapter 5 verse 1 says, And they came over to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Uh, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. So these guys were going crazy. Look at verse 4. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying, cutting himself with stones. So again, th this person was a maniac. He was demon-possessed, and uh, he was just out of control. But, verse 6, when he saw... Jesus, afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried in a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. So again, just a different perspective of the same example, Jesus having complete control and Jesus being completely God. Go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we've seen this example in Mark, and look at what it says in verse 40. Mark chapter, or Luke chapter 4, verse 40. The Bible says, verse 40, Now when the sun was set, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, crying out, and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ.
Christ. So listen, church, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. And yet, while they knew the truth of God, they had no intention of following him. They had no intention of submitting to his authority. They knew the doctrine of Jesus Christ. You could say that they were experts in orthodox doctrine. You could say that they knew that, that Christ was God incarnate and they knew that he had come to save sinners and they knew that he was the Holy One. And you know what that shows us? It shows us very clearly. Church, listen. It shows us very clearly how possible it is to know of God but still not know him at all. It shows us the truth that orthodox doctrine is not proof of saving faith. It shows us very clearly how having a head knowledge of Jesus Christ is not the same as having a heart that is surrendered and submitted to him. Most people here probably know James chapter 2 verse 19 as it says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And James wrote that to show us the importance of saving faith. He wrote that to explain to us that salvation and forgiveness from God does not come from knowing about God, it comes from knowing God. It comes from trusting and submitting your life to Him. It comes from repenting and believing the gospel. The difference between knowing of God and knowing Him is a personal relationship. So this morning I ask you again, do you know God? To be sitting in church right now, and learning about God is not enough. To have grown up in church all of your life and learning doctrine is not enough. To have a head full of knowledge about the things of God is not enough. You have to know God for yourself. Because the knowledge of God is not going to get you to heaven. It will not get you a relationship with God. It will not bring you forgiveness from God. You must be born again. You must know God. And you can only know God by trusting Christ as your Savior. And by the way, it's not just me knowing God, it's God knowing me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3 says, If any man love God, the same is known of him. If you know God, he knows you. If you love God, if you're his son, he knows you. And there are many, unfortunately, that have the Bible in their head, but they do not have Christ in their hearts. But you must turn to Christ. Now personally, I know who God is, and knowing who God is, and everything that's at stake, I don't want to be like the crowd of Mark chapter 3. I don't want to be like these demons. I don't want to be like those men and women that were only interested in what Jesus could do for them. I want to be a disciple of Christ, and I want to do something for Him. You understand, if you have salvation today, we owe Him everything. I think of, uh, and, I don't, and I'm not getting political here, if anybody doesn't like Him, I'm not... I just think this is a good quote, but you probably, some of you probably remember uh, John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, 1961, when he said, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Maybe some of you here remember that. The same is true of a disciple of Christ. Listen, we will not ask, What can Jesus do for me? But rather, we're going to ask, What can I do for him? And we need disciples of Christ that are willing to deny ourselves and serve the King for all He has already done for us. You understand how much Christ has done for us? 
he, he, could do, he could kill us now, and, and he's still been good to us for how many years? We serve such a good God. What can I do for Christ? May none of us here be like that crowd, uh, and may none of us either be like those demons that only knew of Christ but did not know him. May we have more than just a head full of doctrine, have a new heart full of grace. Submit to him and be saved this morning if you're not already. And these three groups in our text, again, they were the disciples, the desires crowds, and the demons. And only one group truly knew Christ, and that was the disciples. They were learners. They were followers of his teachings. They desired to know him. They wanted to know his ways and to learn from him and to follow and obey what he said. Are you truly a disciple of Christ? Really, in two aspects. For one, have you truly decided to follow Jesus? Is he your Lord and Savior? Have you been saved from your sins? Do you know God? Hey, listen. When you know God, there is great peace. There is great peace. Because I know him, I have comfort knowing that if I were to lose everything tomorrow and have no physical possessions, then I still know God. That's awesome, isn't it? That's exciting. Because I know him, if all my friends were to forsake me and I had nobody, I still know God. If my life became a mess tomorrow and nothing was going my way, guess what? I still Know God. And if you know God, you can say with joy today, I may never be rich. I may never be famous. I may never be super popular. I may not even get that promotion. I may not have my dreams become a reality. My problems may not get fixed. But guess what? I still know God. Hey, listen, can you say that this morning? What a joy it is to be able to say that we know God. And not only do we know God, if we know God, we're His child. Man, isn't it just awesome to know God? But the second part of this is if you do know Him, if you do have that great peace, can you say that you're yearning and just longing to know more about our Savior? Are you a true disciple? Are you an active disciple that is getting to know God more and more every day with reading the word of God, with prayer, with uh, attending the church? Are you trying to get to know him more? Not because you have to, but because you get to and you want to. Do you long and desire to know God more every day? Truly. As I said earlier, the greatest pursuit of life is knowing God. Do you desire to know God? If you're a follower of Christ, may that be our desire to know God more. We serve a great and mighty God, don't we? Let's know Him more. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.